Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. As you're probably aware, we're doing a series on the Staffordshire Horde, and we're lucky enough to have access to some rather incredible experts to tell us a bit about the Horde. I'd like to thank the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery and the Potteries Museum in Stoke-on-Trent for the incredible support they've offered to this project. Now, I'd like to start this discussion by sharing with you how exciting this material and the mystery behind it is. And I can think of no better person to really pique your interest than Kathy Shingler. If you're interested in seeing photographs of the object that we're discussing, please head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click on Episode 80, Staffordshire Horde, Rise Up, O Lord. There you'll see images of what we're talking about, as well as links to the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, the Potteries Museum, and of course, to the Horde itself. And with that, let's get this going. I'm Cathy Shingler. I'm Interpretation Officer for Stoke Museum's service, and I've worked with the Horde since it was found, pretty much. For me, the piece that's going to be the key to finding and dating the whole thing is the engraved strip. It's peculiar because it's got writing on all. We know that the Mercians who lived in this part of England were not literate people. That's partly why we know so little about them. And uh, this must have been a staggering piece. It's a Christian piece. It might even be the arm of a cross. And it's got inscribed on it a verse from the Bible on both sides and a dragon's head with a three-pronged tongue. And at one end there's a socket, probably for a garnet, which has been lost. The inscription is surprising, partly because it's from the Christian Bible, and the um, Mercians were the last uh, mainland people to be converted to Christianity. So it may not necessarily have originated in Mercia. But um, also this particular quotation is very significant. It's in Latin, but in rough translation it says, Rise up, O Lord, and may thine enemies that hate thee be scattered and driven from thy face. It's um, it's found twice in the Bible, once in Numbers and once in Psalms, and it's particularly associated with the dedication of new churches. But um, in the life of St. Guthlac, who was a Mercian prince before he became saint, so he's a local lad, and his life was written very soon after he died, so it's by people who knew him personally. After he'd finished a life of princely pillaging and generally roistering about, he became a Christian, round about the time of the probable deposition of the Staffordshire Horde in the late 7th century, and he went to live in a barrow, by which I don't mean a wheelbarrow, but a sort of lump in the ground that has probably been used for, for burying people in. He hollowed it out and used it as his hermitage, and like all good hermits, he had visions of devils, and the particular devils he had visions of were Welsh, and they tormented him terribly. And eventually, in desperation, he shouted this verse at them and they all fluttered away into the darkness and left him in peace. Um, And a couple of hundred years later, St Dunstan is on record as using the same verse of the Bible to get rid of devils. This time it was the devil, it wasn't just a devil. And he recited the same verse at him and he vanished. And both accounts of the saints using this verse don't put the full verse in. They just put the first couple of words so that they know that you will pick up on the verse and you'll know what the rest of it is. So it's obviously a standard verse for getting rid of devils, especially Welsh ones, if at all possible. We thought at first, because the writing is on both sides of the strip and it's quite idiosyncratic writing. It's very similar to the handwriting that you find in things like the Book of Kells and the Lindisfarne Gospels. It's got these triangular ascenders and they're, they're sort of open serifs, and it, it's quite sort of distinctive, and it's quite late. Because it's on both sides of the strip, and because it's spelt slightly differently on both sides, we thought perhaps a monk had written it out for a goldsmith to copy, and the goldsmith had made mistakes, and, and the monk had come back along and said, hey, you, you're doing it wrong, you're going to have to turn it over and start again. 
Um, but a, a few weeks ago, a girl who is a goldsmith came and was talking to me in the exhibition, and she said, whatever else goldsmiths are, they're precise. And if you've given something to a goldsmith to copy, he's going to get it exactly right, even if he doesn't understand what it is, even if he's illiterate and he, he doesn't understand what the letters mean, he'll copy them exactly. So talking to her, we thought it was perhaps more likely that it was the monk himself who'd been doing the engraving. And the mistakes he's made are because he's unfamiliar with engraving. He's concentrating on the process rather than the words. And it may not, because he'd made mistakes, that he'd turned it over and done it on both sides. He knew that whatever it was, it was it was mounted on something, so you could, you could only see one side. But there is also a tradition of secret writing, where you write in places that, that can't be seen, and it might have more to do with that. So I think this is a particularly intriguing piece. It's the only piece with any writing on at all. And I think when this is studied paleographically and, and everything else, this, this is going to turn out to be the key to the whole thing. So we're dealing with the early literacy portion of, of Anglo-Saxon history. Before the use of Old English and writing in Old English, it was primarily runes that were being written down, right? Yes, although um, runes tend to be associated with later pieces and and certainly the Mercians weren't writing in anything at all they're completely illiterate you don't you don't really get widespread literacy until you've got Christianity and right. it's you know monks and things that, that that do the writing so this certainly came out of a monastery when you look at runes typically there's a magical context in that do you think that there's a similar magical context to inscribing this and having the secret inscription well there might be and you wouldn't have to be a Christian to find this magical the, the, the Saxons were tremendously superstitious people and they've got a, a terrific track record of taking things from other cultures Roman or Christian or whatever and reusing them as amulets and just think how powerful this would have seemed as an amulet even if you weren't a Christian firstly it's gold which is like quite magic then it's got writing on which is quite magic it's got writing on in the Christian special secret magic language, which is even more magic. And it's from the Christian special secret magic book, which is about as magic as you can get. So the Saxons may have thought, well, you know, it works for the Christians. Uh, what's it going to do for us? And also, if it turns out to be battle loot, um, the people the Mercians are most likely defeating in battle and looting from are the Northumbrians. And they've been Christian for quite a long time, um, certainly for, for some time before the, the Mercians. So given the potential magic of this, why do you think that it was bent and then then buried or discarded? Um, I don't think it was discarded. I think it was incorporated into a greater hoard. I think the Staffordshire hoard has been assembled over, you know, over a long period of time. You, it's not going to be the the results of one battle. It's, it's just too big. So you'd have been adding to it over and over again. And if you're an Anglo-Saxon king or lord, um, your worth as king or lord is measured partly in what a good present giver you are. You expect absolute loyalty from your closest soldiers and they live with you in your mead hall and they sleep there and they eat there and they drink there and they fight with you and if you're killed they die with you because you can't just say oh the Lord's dead we'll all go home you've got to fight until pretty much everyone on one side of the other is dead. So to keep them sweet, you've got a hoard of treasure and you dish this out you know hey off you lock that Northumbrian's head off a tree to have this beautiful little hilt ring for your sword or what have you. And it's not impossible this formed part of a hoard like that. If you think about Anglo-Saxon literature, a common synonym for Lord is ring giver. And you tend to think when you're reading it that it's finger rings, but it's just as likely to be hilt rings that go around the handles of the swords. I particularly think this because when I was reading Beowulf before we put this exhibition up, I was reminded that the king in there is, is often referred to as the ring breaker. And it's not like a shocking bad thing, shouldn't be breaking rings, it's a good thing. And you don't have to break finger rings to, to get them off, you can just chop my finger off if you want this ring. 
But um, if you want to get a, a sword ring, a hilt ring off, off the handle of a sword, you do have to break it rarely. And if you've got a skilled goldsmith in the court, he can reattach it and, to a new sword. But um, your lord's wealth and prowess in giving and his sort of particular selection of good presents for appropriate people is a measure of his, um, his lordliness. So this might have been a hidden bank for him to provide gifts to his lords or a, a treasure trove that was... Had well, to be hastily put aside? That's what I tend to think, um, because I approach it from the literary side. A lot of my colleagues have, have other opinions, and um, we'll probably never know for certain. But one strange thing is there are no blades found with it, and that for an Anglo-Saxon, the blades were at least as important as the bling that went on them. And it's not impossible that the lord or king would have had two hordes, one of um, blades and one of fancy bits. And if a, a promising young man signs up to fight for the king, he might say, well, here, yeah, you know, have one of these blades. It's just got an ordinary wooden handle on it at the moment, but uh, you know, see how you shape up, and we'll get the goldsmith to bring it up for you later on. Now, what I've noticed while looking over the hoard is the prevalence of garnets. Uh, you see more garnets than just about anything else, other than maybe gold. Can you explain a little bit about? Well, the we garnets? don't really understand why. Obviously, garnets were incredibly significant for the Anglo-Saxons because it wasn't that they were sort of lying around and they were easy to use, and you know, far from it. They having to import them from abroad, and they they're very difficult to cut and to shape. And we know that they were really, really important to the, the Saxons and possibly on a spiritual level because there's one piece in there, it's a sword ring and a bit of garnet has fallen out. And so they've taken a piece of amber and they've carved it to the same shape as the garnets and fitted it in. And we know that they thought amber was magic because of its electrical properties. And so garnets must have had the same sort of spiritual significance for them. And on the, the, the crumpled cross, one of the garnets, while it was still in use, has cracked. And they can't just go over to Sri Lanka and get another garnet. So they've, they've stuck it back together with little bands of gold which they, they tried to make into a pattern so that it's, it looks as if they meant to do that, as if it was supposed to be decorated like that. But obviously, the, the garnetiness of the garnets was something very, very important that couldn't be replaced by just anything. Some people have suggested that they're just recycling Roman garnets, and probably some of them are. But the Romans used an awful lot of other precious stones that they haven't recycled and, and, and reused. So, so the garnets have got to have some some greater significance. So it could be the Anglo-Saxon version of diamond. Always pick I, diamonds as best. Or I, th- I think it's it's got to be deeper than that. Anglo-Saxons are very very keen on symbolism, and I think the garnets have got to mean something. With with Christian artifacts like. The crosses. You can say that garnets represent the blood of Christ, but obviously that isn't going to wash for the for the pagan Anglo-Saxons. So that, that it's probably a sort of repurposed symbolism, and that it meant something to the to the pagan Anglo-Saxon that has been lost in translation. Now they were worshiping Nordic gods, Thor, Woden, that sort of thing. Is there any particular god that's associated with that deep red? Um, not so much the deep red, no. But there is a god who's associated with gold, and that is Wayland Smith. He's a goldsmith. He's the best goldsmith there is. And he's married to a swan. He and his brother found swan ladies bathing one day and they hid their clothes so they couldn't change back into swans and fly away. And um, they married the girls and lived with them happily for many years. And then one day the wives found their swan skins again and flew away. And Wayland was convinced that one day his wife would come back and while he was waiting for her to come back, he made beautiful, beautiful golden rings and other jewellery. She didn't come back, but a rival king from a different country saw one of the rings and kidnapped Wayland, took him to his palace and hamstrung him. He cut his hamstring so that he was lame and he couldn't escape. 
and he kept Wayland prisoner um, to make beautiful golden objects. One night, the king's sons came to see Wayland and tormented him and mocked him, and he killed them, and he cut off their heads, and he turned their eyes into necklaces and their teeth into pearls for his rings and their heads into goblets, which he set in beautifully chased gold and sent up to the palace as a present. I don't know what he did with the rest of them. And the king's daughter came down to see who had made these beautiful things. And Wayland got her drunk and raped her. And all this time, he and his brother had been gathering feathers and making them into wings. So you've got the sort of Daedalus and Icarus um, connection there. And putting on the wings, Wayland Smith escaped and he flew to the palace and made the king promise that he would never harm any of his children. And the king knew that Wayland's wife had turned into a swan, flown away, and he didn't have any children, so of course he promised. And Wayland flew away, and of course the king then discovers that his daughter is pregnant by Wayland, and he cannot harm the baby. And Wayland is a god, and he's a goldsmith. And there's still a place, I think it's in Oxfordshire, it's, a, it's an old tumulus, an old grave, an old barrow grave. And if your horse needs shoeing, and you tie it up there and you leave a sixpence and then you go to the pub. When you come back, your horse will have been shooed and it will be Wayland the Smith who's done that. So rather than just being a, a sheer display of wealth, the use of all this gold could have been a holdover of that pagan reverence to Wayland the God. I think it might have been. We, we know very, very little about what the pagan Saxons believed. I mean, you know, we've got, we've got the days of the week, we've got place names, and Bede mentions some, for example, he mentions the goddess of, of spring who's called Eostra. And we think the hair is sacred to her, and that's all we know about her. And we've got one of our major Christian festivals is called after her. We know nothing about her at all. So it's it's you know it's it's tempting to speculate, but it's also very dangerous to speculate. And you've got to think of practical things as well. You 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 haven't got banks or anything. You've got to carry your wealth around with you. You might as well put it on something practical. But um, as we say, the Saxons never did anything by accident, and I'm sure the the things they're making out of gold are symbolic of, of all sorts of, of of deep and spiritual things that we don't we don't know about yet. Okay, hopefully that piqued your interest and you're getting really excited. We're going to have a bunch of episodes like this coming up. Some are going to be about this length, commute size, I like to call them. Others are going to be more full-length episodes. It really depends on the subject matter and how it really flows well together. So hopefully you're enjoying this and you're looking forward to the next episode. Now, just to remind you, if you go over to our website, you can find photographs of what we were talking about and you can also find links to the Staffordshire Horde, the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, and the Potteries Museum in Stoke-on-Trent, and I encourage you to check all three of them out. And as a little preview of what's coming up, on Thursday, I think I'm going to be able to talk to Stephen Dean, the county archaeologist who is dealing with the Staffordshire Horde. I've been trying to get this together for a little bit, and it seems that the stars have aligned. So we've got that to look forward to, and hopefully he's going to give us a blow-by-blow account of how the objects were pulled out of the ground and what happened there. So it should be really exciting, and it should really give you an idea of exactly what was going on. This was a clandestine dig. It was super secret. So it should be really exciting to listen to. So hopefully that's going to happen on Thursday. I'm going to go straight to work editing that as soon as I get done with the interview and I'll get it up live as soon as possible for you guys so hopefully you're going to have that to listen to by the weekend as always if you have any questions comments or concerns you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com you can also go over to the Facebook community we're at facebook.com slash British History you can also find us on Twitter just search for at British Podcast and you can join the forums it's really easy all you need to do is go over to the British History Podcast.com click on get involved and click forums and you'll find us all over there. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>